Good evening and welcome to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. That beautiful song was Diane Patterson. This is Chad Swimmer coming to you live from the Fort Bragg studio with my friend Paul Schulman. Yes, and the Fort Bragg studio of KZYX. And that's uh, 90.7 FM in Philo. And KZYZ, well, it's in Ukiah, 91.5 FM. And in Fort Bragg, 88.1 FM. And we also stream live at kzyx.org. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting Listener Supported Community Radio. So how are you doing tonight, Paul? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself, Chad? I'm doing very well. Excellent. And we're going to have a great show tonight. Um, we're going to have start out with updates uh, of what's going on in Jackson State Forest right now. We're going to be talking to Alder, who's on the ground in there. And... Uh, then we'll talk to Sarah Rose, an interview that we recorded earlier with her. She's a, a youth forest activist. And um, we've got another interview that we recorded recently with Bill Lemos. He's uh, very knowledgeable from Mendocino. And um, we'll have updates about uh, the Fat Casper Forest Fest, which is an event we're putting on this July 31st. And, Finally, we're going to be speaking live with Naomi Wagner. So we got a lot of stuff. And just to remind you, the Trail Stewards Radio Hour is focused on Jackson Demonstration State Forest, which is 78 square miles, uh, 50,000 acres of publicly owned land owned by you and me, stretching from Mendocino to almost Willits. So right now, let's go to Alder, who has been very busy on the ground. Alder, are you with us? Yes, I am. Hey, guys. Hey. Um, so I just wanted to do a brief overview of everything that's been happening. Um, so, yeah, everybody knows that the uh, the logging began in the Casper 500 on June 10th, and after about two weeks of struggle uh, on the weekend of the 19th and 20th, um, Anderson Logging Incorporated called off the operations there. And from there, yes. activists ventured out to other timber harvest plants to make sure that the message was sent that we don't want logging in any of the Jackson Demonstration State Forest owned by the public. Um, and then on the on July 12th, everything was more or less quiet after uh, um, things were shut down in, in the other THPs. Um, but then on July 12th, there was a big action where every potentially active THP was occupied by activists uh, to make sure that everyone knows that there is a citizen's moratorium on logging. Uh, and that went pretty well. There was no uh, cutting trees uh, seen on that day, and it seemed that the licensed timber operators were only carrying the fallen trees out, and they weren't dropping anymore. Um, and since then, uh, there's been a presence on the ground. People have been checking up and making sure that no more cutting is happening. Unfortunately, it sounds like we may have uh, some reports that cutting is happening in the Chamberlain THP. Um, so we'll see what happens there. Everybody's been focusing their attention on uh, growing the movement and getting more people involved. Um, there's a lot of enthusiastic people that are that are ready to, to help out. All right. Thanks a ton, Alder. We hope to have you back next yep. time. Thank you, Chad. And we're going to go to a short interview with Sarah Constance Rose. Camp with three youth forest activists and a dog on a foggy Casper morning. I'm speaking now with Sarah Constance Rose. Sarah, can you tell us what this camp is all about? 
We created the Gemini Action Camp to work as a centralized place for our groups to meet and break off to do other actions. We provide information to the public. Um, we show people to the Gemini Tree, and we help them get involved. What is the Gemini Tree? The Gemini Tree is a special tree that we have selected to create a little camp at to protect because she is in a road that the loggers are planning to create, and therefore they can take her without marking her for cut. How big is she? Oh, um, I'm, I'm not sure I haven't gotten a measurement, but she is big. I couldn't reach all the way around. How many mornings have you been here? Um, around 20 since mid-June. And what time do you get here? Anywhere between 4 and 5 a.m. What kind of activity have you seen here? A lot of people come out to recreate. So they're hiking, they're walking their dogs, they're biking, they're riding their horses. Yeah. Are there any attempts at logging? Um, I haven't seen any because we've been out here and we've been maintaining a presence and showing the loggers that we don't like what they're planning to do. And over on the other side of the parking lot, there's a canopy and some security guards that have been here for a couple months now, I think. Uh, do you ever talk to them? We talk to them sometimes. They're friendly. We get along. Do they look bored? Um, a little bit, but I've heard that they enjoy being out in the forest. How old are you, Sarah? I'm 15. And what school do you go to? I go to the Mendocino Community High School. What got you into forest activism? Um, I grew up in the Redwoods, and I just have a deep love for them, so I thought I need to help save them however I can. We would love to do a full-length interview with you next month on our show. Would you be able to do that? Yes. Would you have one thought to leave us with until then? Um, we need people to come and get involved, and anything that you can do is helpful. Thank you so much for all you do, Sarah. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. Very honored to be here in the KZYX. And that was recorded this morning out at the Casper, State, Casper Scales. We are now going to go to an interview we recorded last week with Bill Lemos. Good evening. We are very honored to be here in the KZYX Satellite Studio at the Redwood Coast Senior Center in Fort Bragg. We are speaking tonight with Bill Lemos. And Bill is uh, joining us. He's uh, been a lifetime resident of the Mendocino area. And uh, he uh, worked in environmental education for many, many years, mostly at Mendocino High School, also teaching English. And, uh, you know, I, I think of him as a scientist and a historian to, to a certain extent. And he brings uh, quite a lot of experience to... Uh, to this uh, issue that we're talking about tonight. So, Bill, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what shaped your environmental consciousness? Yeah, sure, that's a good way to work into this. Thanks, Paul and, and uh, Chad for inviting me in. I'm pleased to be here. Um, Glad to have you. Um, my environmental background uh, really began with uh, the upbringing that we were allowed here in Mendocino in the 60s with a wide open door to uh, to nature. I was born here in 1949 and uh, by the time I got to be 10 years old it was a wide open door to explore as much of the outdoors as possible and my friends and I used the Big River Beach and the Big River Estuary, the uh, 
the Woodlands area, the Fort Bragg 10-mile area, all, all the areas that we could uh, get to, either mom would drive us there or we would bicycle to areas and do quite a bit of exploring of the uh, the rivers and the streams and um, the beaches. And by the time that I reached high school and started playing sports, uh, it became real obvious that we were in a situation that was quite a wonderland. It was actually a, a wonderful fantasy world that we lived in where you know, you could go to school in the daytime, and when school was out, you either played sports or you went to the beach and surfed or went scuba diving or skin diving or whatever it was that we chose to, to do in the afternoons. But it was mostly outdoors, and it gave me a great sense of what a wonderland that we live here in, in Mendocino Coast. Um, my adult life I spent uh, trying to encourage students to take a broader look at uh, environmental issues and I was fortunate enough to be involved in the uh, Sonoma State Wilderness Education Program that was run by Robert Greenway and I actually took over his program from uh, him in the high school arena when I got my job in 1974 and 1975 I started taking students into the backcountry and uh, from from those experiences really shaped and formed my concept of how important it is for people to pay attention to what's going on in nature and um, the resource management program that we eventually turned into um, uh, a program within a program at the Mendocino High School, the School of Natural Resources, was an outcome of many of the uh, years that I had spent as a child and as a young adult being in nature and um, just uh, seeing what was uh, what's going on out there and um, fortunately uh, I was able to actually get a, an advanced degree my PhDs in environmental education and um, I was able to use the experiences that I had had with students traveling in many remote areas to uh, formulate a wilderness program that was a curriculum for educating students on how to uh, become um, resource managers, and that was the School of Natural Resources, which continues at Mendocino High School to this day. So that's some of how my background shapes my environmental awareness. Thanks. Well, we know that a number of your students have become pretty active in our present movement, the, the new campaign to restore Jackson State Forest. Uh, can you tell us about a few of those? Yeah, there have been so many stellar students that have moved through uh, Mendocino school district that uh, have found ways to contribute to uh, research and education, um, monitoring, and uh, doing things that we thought at the time when we were doing uh, studies within the Big River estuary that led to the acquisition of that uh, estuary property, the 7,500 acres that became part of state parks. We were doing fish studies, uh, coho salmon mostly, and steelhead. Um, students would uh, look at that data and report back to Fish and Wildlife on the findings and it was a really great opportunity for those students to get on the ground training for how they would then go into college and into careers afterwards. Several of them have become Fish and Wildlife managers, um, Fish and Game representatives, some are engineers, some are educators. There have been a, a wide variety of students who have uh, moved on, some of them whom have come back and are now teaching at Mendocino High School. Uh, it's been quite a journey of, of, uh, of uh, awareness of 
how student uh, experiential education can lead back to the community in real positive ways. No, well, one of those is Andy Wellspring. That's who I correct. Think is teaching the sonar sonar program now, and his daughter Jory, who at five years old is one of the spokespeople for uh, for the campaign. I am curious about um, this transfer of seventy five hundred acres or twelve square miles of private timberland to state parks and the steps. And since our theme tonight is how to save a forest, can you talk to us more about that? I sure can. Uh, um, it was an amazing process. Uh, it, it started in nineteen. Well, it actually started in nineteen seventy six when Georgia Pacific had a plan to do a timber harvest plan. Uh, within the estuary of Big River, and there was um, quite a public outcry at that point because it was going to be visible from the town of Mendocino, and it caused a, a stir, and um, there was a protest, and there were flyers and petitions, and they backed off from doing it within view of town and just moved further inland. If you've ever flown over Mendocino County, you can see the the scars of uh, timber harvest plants past. Um, there's just it, it's quite a patchwork quilt of of really ugly clear cuts and timber harvest plants. Uh, the Big River um, watershed has been extraordinarily hard hit over the years. Not only originally with the the large trees removed in the first logging operations. So we were just talking about that the other day. Uh, if they had only just left 20 or 25 percent of the old growth trees, just think of how happy we would be to walk through a forest and see a tree that was 12 feet in diameter. But no, they, they had one thing in mind, and that was to get all the timber out as quickly as possible. So we have very, very few old growth redwoods left on the Big River watershed. But if you look at the history of, first it was the Union Lumber Company and then Georgia Pacific, they really did uh, quite an extraordinary job of taking almost all the second growth off the Big River watershed. There are a few patches left, but it has um, been, in my estimation, 70 or 75 percent cleared for a second time. Uh, at one point, I believe it was 1985, I did a trespass with a couple of friends, and we walked from the bridge on Kompshukaya Road at the, um, uh, uh, beyond Boomershines, where the bridge crosses there in the valley, and we walked downstream past Hellgate all the way through Nat Opening and down to Piccolotti's and all the way back to the ocean. It was a 20-mile hike, 25-mile hike on the river, got in a little trouble from a local anti-activist, Jack Helfer, at the time, mm -hmm. because he said we were all trespassing, and what right do we have to trespass on private property? But we were in the river for about 80% of the time. It took us three days to do it. And what we wow. saw during that period of time was that logging roads are everywhere in the backcountry of Big River, and um, timber harvests have, uh, there's just acre after acre after acre that have been leveled. And basically nobody can see that because it's all private property away from any access that people have to those regions of Big River. And it really gave me a sense of how hard Big River has been abused over the years. And so 
the, the short story is that um, that really motivated me to become part of a group in 1999. There were just four of us who sat down at the Mendocino Hotel when Georgia Pacific was proposing to log again in the estuary. And four of us said, well, that's just not a good idea. What if we bought the property? And everybody just sort of laughed at the point of uh, how can we purchase something that, that grand? But uh, we had uh, an idea sprung at that point of how uh, possible it was to maybe move forward with, if we could find the right um, agencies and nonprofits and uh, donors to get uh, a group together to start pursuing ways to move around the uh, the inevitability that we thought at that time of the of these trees being removed from the logging road, um, the haul road that goes from Big River up to the woodlands. And lo and behold, within two and a half years, we had raised over $26 million. And it wow. was a combination of uh, private donors, um, uh, non-government organizations, agencies like Fish and Wildlife, Caltrans, uh, a whole lot of different agencies. There were federal agencies. And the School of Natural Resources was right in the middle of all of that. We were doing research. And I remember one day we were walking up uh, the Hall Road and a representative from the California Fish and Wildlife uh, head office in Sacramento was with us. And I looked down at the river and I mentioned that there were some seals in the river and I wondered if they were eating any salmon uh, fry or, you know, young of the year. Or, and he said, there's no fish down in that river. And I said, well, there might be. And he says, well, if there's fish down in the river, I'll put in a million dollars to save this river. I go, okay, well, I'll find out. So we got our students into wetsuits, and we took some video cameras, and we went down to the river with the help of Cam Campbell Hawthorne, who had purchased the property right at that moment in 2000 from Georgia Pacific. And we did video footage. We've got great video footage of uh steelhead and coho salmon swimming around in the estuary and we sent that to the fish and wildlife um, executive and he did they the fish and wildlife eventually put money into that cause so we raised a whole yeah. bunch of money and uh, it was just a phenomenal uh, effort by the community and eventually was able to make that purchase of that estuary ridge to ridge from uh, the Big River Bridge east up to just east of the Woodlands recreational area, almost to the Piccolotti, the old Piccolotti Company Ranch property. It's about 10 miles of river uh, wetlands. And um, it's, it was a, a wonderful acquisition, and the land trust led that effort. Um, we eventually transferred that to state parks, and it became uh, part of the Mendocino Headlands Big River unit of the Mendocino Headlands State Park. Um, as far as taking that out of ownership of the private timber companies, yes, those trees are still standing on that property and they're still growing. There's a section of it um, included in that property called the Fritz Wonder Plot, which has been studied for over a hundred years. And it, you see a professor from Berkeley, um, Emanuel Fritz had been studying that plot, and um, those trees had shown remarkable growth characteristics due to the fact that the alluvial plain that they sit on has caused them to just uh, grow at a phenomenal rate. Most of them are second growth in that plot 
below the woodlands. And so there are characteristics within that watershed that needed to be protected. And as far as taking those trees and the rest of the trees out of timber production, sure, yes, there was a loss of some employment during that period of time that, um, that when that when that happened. But at the same time, if you've gone across Big River Bridge and looked down at the river east of uh, the bridge during any busy holiday weekend or even on a regular weekend, you'll see how many people are actually using and enjoying that estuary. That estuary is actually part of a marine protected area that we've been that we did work on during the uh, that late 2000 period, 2009 to 2012, added into the marine protected area. So yes, there's a, a whole lot, a whole lot of facets of that property that have history, and um, the value of whatever uh, I guess people want to put on that in terms of uh, what its value is, the value that seems to work for many people, especially people who come and visit here, as well as the local residents are hiking, biking, kayaking, horseback riding, swimming. I mean, the list goes on and on, the people who enjoy that watershed. So this is um, all really good information and the idea of value and ecosystem valuation, which unfortunately is a very you know, modern concept because we think of everything in dollars and cents. We need to put a value on it. But if anybody was down at Big River this last weekend, you know, it's been 110 degrees inland, there was no parking anywhere. The, the beach looked like Huntington Beach, and people were here, and they were spending money, and they were getting their spiritual recharge, and kids were playing in the water. But to me, this is the, the big package, the big picture of this acquisition that you, you shepherded along is really important. And the Fritz Wonder Plot, which I'm glad you talked about, and people hopefully have heard of this. This is where it was proven, one of the three plots where it's been proven that redwoods are the greatest sequester of carbon in the world. And the redwood ecosystem puts on biomass at the fastest rate of any ecosystem in the world. And the Fritz Wonder Plot was possibly another place that would have been logged because it was owned by private timber interests. There is, um, there are lessons we need to take from this, and it's a very different situation now with Jackson State because we're not trying to buy private timberland, and the state is not offering to sell this land. But there's definitely things that we should be learning from this, and you know, I'm curious what what are the lessons you would, that you would take away from your struggle that we could apply now. Great question. Uh, I think the, personally, it's a headset. Uh, modification. Uh, so uh, it's a great example, and I've used it often. Because I grew up in this region, and uh, timber harvesting, extraction, has been a mainstay of my family and many of the friends and neighbors that I know and, and love well here. Um, we get into our heads uh, certain concepts that take uh, some... <laughs> outside influence to change the way we think. So we're driving through the Big River estuary, and I'm looking at trees, and we're on a tour with a number of different organizations, one of whom was the uh, 
the uh, Save the Redwoods League, and Kate Anderton, a wonderful woman who had run that organization for years, was in the van with us, and we're driving along Kamshikaya Road, and I look over to what is a reserve of older growth timber that I had in my mind uh, already thought of as just something that the lumber companies, the original Big River Lumber Company and then the uh, Union Lumber Company and then Georgia Pacific and then Campbell Hawthorne had set aside just in case of emergency because it's close to the road and it's close to getting those big trees out of there and so in my mind i you know many years of being around those trees i thought i'm probably just going to be cut down at some point and hauled out of there so i made that comment as we're driving down kamshiakai road oh look uh here's a grove of older trees but i didn't use the word trees i made a mistake and i used the word timber here's a nice stand of timber i said Kate Anderson from this front seat looked over her shoulder at me and said, we call them trees. <laughs> <laughs> and it was that kind of moment where I went, oh, yeah, I'm sort of stuck here in this extraction mentality. I have, you know, as many of us do, a need to survive. And so that survival is based upon taking things from the environment. And until we find that space in ourselves where we can go, hmm, maybe we can look at a different way or maybe we can do it better. Um, those kind of concepts of, you know, how to change that perspective of it's maybe not just about how much money this tree is worth. Maybe it's producing a value that is higher than I can even conceive. And so those kind of shifts, uh, for me personally, have been very, very fundamental in, in moving forward. The, uh, the next concept that uh, really moved me was the concept that students bring so much energy to their efforts to persuade people that you're looking at things a way adults look at them, but children might look at them in a different way. And that was during the Marine Life Protection Act uh, process that I mentioned, when students were able to stand up in front of adult groups who were discussing or debating whether or not it was a good idea to preserve some offshore protected areas for the future. And those students had that energy, that spark that said, what we're doing here today to preserve these protected areas in the ocean are really about us. They're not about you. Your generation had its chance. What did you do? You overfished the ocean. You overcut the timber. You did things that we now have to come back and look at in terms of what do we do as young people to make the changes so that we can survive just like you survived off the extraction mentality that, you, that you've been using. Hey, Bill, um, thanks for that. I really appreciate that perspective. And uh, um, I, re I remember that you wrote an article that I read uh, that uh, we were able to put on our website, the MendocinoTrailStewards.org website. And uh, the title is, How Many Salmon Eggs Per Board Foot? Question mark. And so, so where did that title come from? And you want to talk a little bit about that and 
Sure, Paul. How that relates to JDSF. Yeah, that, that was, uh, you know, what can I do? Uh, I'm a single person here uh, trying to struggle with the concept of what my background and experience can lead to in terms of helping other people see how important it is that we look forward and try to uh, do things that are going to enhance our ex our existence and be better for the community. And so I wrote this paper. It came from a, a discussion that was about Casper Creek, um, one of the most studied watersheds on the planet in terms of timber harvesting. And uh, one of the presenters had used that argument, how many salmon eggs per board foot in terms of how do we proceed to manage a piece of property and, and give some kind of balance and make a balance happen between extraction and preservation. And so, you know, my, after having studied coho salmon populations on Big River for years, and, you know, just the, the concept that we had um, an abundance of fish here in my lifetime. I mean, we were fishing in the 60s. Uh, coho salmon were everywhere. I mean, every fall we would spend days and days in trolling in the rivers and in the bays, and we'd always come home with fish. And overnight, it seemed, that that all disappeared, sort of like the abalone concept. You know, we had abalone, and then all of a sudden, there were a whole bunch of abalone that weren't there. And there's conditions that are changing so rapidly. So that was one of the things that that question asked, is how do we find that balance between what we do and what we don't do? And so... Um, in my judgment, it would be great to have a whole lot of salmon eggs and not many board feet in areas that have been logged over and over again. And in the Jackson Demonstration State Forest, we can see perfect example of how many times we can look at a map and see how many timber harvest plants have taken place over the uh, 70 years, 75 years that it's been in existence, plus added to how many times or how hard it was hit in the original extraction efforts in the first logging operation. And we can say, wow, these fish don't have a chance unless we give them some respite from these hard line um, attitudes that we've got to take more timber out. We've got to remove trees, which is going to make the, the uh, streams warmer and the fish are not going to like it. And the, the trees are going to re remove uh, soil from the moisture and it's going to get hot. All the things that we're doing don't make sense to me if we're going to think about trying to preserve these endangered coho salmon and steelhead. Thank you, Bill. This is all the time we have now, but I encourage you to go to our website. And uh, we have at the MendocinoTrailStewards.org the policy papers page. We have a number of great articles, including uh, an extensive history by Bill Lemos, the how many salmon eggs per board feet problem. Uh, we hope to have you back, and thank you so much for being here with us. Well, thank you. All right, thanks, Bill. Really it was appreciate a pleasure. it. Yeah. yeah. So we can sing one more together, okay? Is that all right with you? This one's for the fish. This is your part. I'm a wild Chinook salmon in no hatchery child. People, I'm a wild Chinook salmon. There ain't no hatchery child. And when you dam up my river, 
you cramp my style I'm a wild Chinook salmon Ain't no hatchery child Same line again I'm a wild Chinook salmon Ain't no hatchery child And when you dam up my river Cramp my style. You got it. Yeah. Yeah, that's Alice DiMaselli. And with the Chinook Blues. She's going to be playing um, on Saturday, July 31st at the Casper Community Center. Along with a whole host of other musicians and speakers. We're going to be putting on an event we're calling Casper Forest Fest. And uh, we're hoping to bring... All the tribes together and people that want more information about what's going on in Jackson State Forest and what we're trying to do about it. There'll be uh, m many information booths there from all the different coalition members that are working to save Jackson State Forest. In fact, you can also uh, go to a new website that we have um, for that purpose and it's called savejackson.org. Yeah, I'm really excited for this. We've got a lineup of great music and also some great speakers. We are going to have uh, Priscilla Hunter, the Pomo Tribal Elder. We're having Chad Hansen, wildfire ecologist, um, educator, writer, and human rights activist. Bellevue Rooks will be reading some poetry. Ignacio Chapella, Sarah Rose, Vince Taylor, Ted Williams, and more. And this is uh, put together and brought to you by the Coalition to Save Jackson State Forest, which is really the movement, the Coyote Valley Band of Pomo, Redwood Nation Earth First, Mama Tree Network, the Environmental Protection Information Center, the Mendocino Tra Trail Stewards, Families for the Forest, Mendocino Environmental Center, see if I can speak quickly, because there's so much. But anyway, Paul. Yeah. Oh, and I didn't tell you about all the musicians. So in addition to Alice Dunselli, who will be appearing with, right with a band, in addition to that, we also have Di Diane Patterson, amazing singer-songwriter, the Miller Family Band, uh, Secondhand Grass with special guest Gene Parsons. And here's a big surprise. We're going to have Bug Guts. Bug Guts? Yeah. No. I just cleaned them all off the front of my car. Yeah. Bug Guts are going to be there. All right. Well, we hope that people will come out and join us. And that is Saturday, July 31st from 1 until we're all done, which may be late. Oh, and there'll be food. Food and there'll be a beer and wine bar and all that kind of good stuff. All right, so we have Naomi Wagner, who is a longtime Earth Firster, the president of the Mendocino Environmental Center, and she's a nonviolence trainer, and she's been really amazing, everything she's been doing in the last few months around here. Paul. Hey. Uh, hi, Naomi. Thanks for joining hi. us. Um, I was wondering if you could uh, share with us uh, the process by which you became involved in environmental activism? Wow. Well, it depends where we start with that. But um, activism, uh, I think I became an, an environmentalist at a very young age um, and through some experiences, um, just understanding that plants could, um, were so amazing and how they could live on air and water and soil and they could die back and come back to life. That, that just um, was a source of tremendous wonder to me as a child, and I've never really lost that. I just think that the creation is just a marvelous place of wonder. <laughs> um, 
and something that we should um, protect, of course. But as far as activism, um, I did my first action, uh, my first civil disobedience in high school at Arcata High with my twin sister when we refused to take part in the um, bomb shelter evacuation plans that were popular in the 50s. Um, where kids were, everybody was supposed to dig a bomb shelter for themselves, and uh, because the Russians were going to attack, and the school was going to evacuate and send everybody home, uh, or else we were supposed to cower under our desks um, and then go out into the radiation. So we didn't think this was a very good plan, and we just refused to do it. We stayed in our classroom, and um, then we did the basic, classic civil disobedience thing. And we wrote letters to the editor and explained why we did it, and we got um, disciplined for it. And um, that was that was our first action. So, and then I uh, got together with the um, the friends, the Quakers, and they really um, gave me my first experience of um, nonviolence and the commitment to nonviolent civil disobedience. Um, I was at a um, I was part of a youth group that um, we went to do support for um, people who were sailing their um, trimarans, actually, into the Christmas Island nuclear testing zone. And one of the men had a, um, he owned an almond farm, and our youth group went and harvested the almonds because everybody was out on their, on the boats. So those are the kind of experiences that I had early on, and it just seemed like a kind of a natural thing to do. Um, so from there, um, fast forward, um, my family actually uh, was born in England and um, came to the States um, after World War II, uh, right after it. And then we moved across the U.S. I, spent, we, I grew up in Texas, Iowa, and Kansas, and my world was very flat and full of corn and wheat until we um, moved out to California, <clears throat> to Northern California, and we um, did a car camping trip up through Glacier National Park. And I just saw the wonders of the, the Rocky Mountains and the forests and the lakes and the glaciers, and it was just so, again, wondrous. Um, and then we came down through Oregon to Arcata. To my dad was um, going to be a music professor at Humboldt State University. It was actually a college at the time, but we couldn't get in to Arcata because of the flood. The 1955 floods had just um, blocked off the entrance to the north end of Arcata. And everything was silted up, and the rivers were so high, and there were all these dead cows on the on the beach. And I didn't know at the time that that was caused by clear cutting up in Corbell and Blue Lake, where they had just cut the heck out of the forest, and then there were torrential rains. And you can still see the um, markers of the the height of the water where the Eel River came through. Um, and really, the main trees that still were standing after that flood were the redwoods. So, um, like Bill and like uh, Sarah, I grew up in the Redwoods um, from the age of 10 when we moved out here, and they just did seem like home, and um, we played in the forests after school. We never thought about trespassing, and the timber companies were tolerant in those days of people going on their land. It wasn't a big problem, and it also didn't seem like a very big problem that we saw these one-log trucks going by our house mm. on the freeway. Um, I could look out my bedroom window and see them. And we really didn't think much of that. You know, we thought that there would always be more. Um, and we were very used to the, to the timber industry. A lot of my friends, their parents worked in the logging industries or in the mill. Um, back in those days, they had tea, the teepee burners, 
where um, they would burn the sawdust and that would like you couldn't hang your laundry out or anything so it would be all turned to black. So the air pollution was intense, but at the same time the timber industry paid for the schools. And so people just really accepted it. And I guess it's been quite a, a journey for me to, um, you know, I, I left the area and went away, lived in other places. And when I came back in the um, 70s, actually the late 70s, I was like, oh, my God, the forest has been crew cut. And it not only was clear cut, but it was just everything was smaller because of what Bill was saying, that in, just like in Big River everywhere else, the second growth and the, the um, old growth and second growth is really being cleaned out. So, um, yeah, I lived in Santa Barbara for some time, and I was involved in the ecology movement there and um, co-oping like mad. We co-opt everything, um, kids, laundry, school, and gardening. And we had a big um, communal um, truck farm, actually, it turned into, of organic um, vegetables that we were growing um, and selling. Of course, the city busted us for not having proper licenses. But um, that got me involved again in, in ecology and on the environment and also in organizing with groups of people. Um, so am I answering your question? Am I oh, yeah. on track here? Mm -hmm. This is great. And, you know, that's... So you and I, when we first talked, we figured out that we have a really interesting connection, um, that you were involved in the anti-nuclear movement with my father, David Swimmer, and we were talking about nonviolence trainings, and that to me is so important, and my father was very, um, he was big on nonviolence, and it seems like when nations and governments are resolving practically everything by force, and you are talking about you're a nonviolence trainer, what does that mean? Well, actually, that's a pretty fast forward. And, and I didn't. I knew your dad. Um, he was more involved in the anti-nuclear movement than I was. But um, yeah, from there, um, I, I had kids in those days, and actually, most of my um, interactions were in the schools. Um, and um, actually, my earliest background in nonviolence, I guess, is um, I lived in a kibbutz in Israel for about six years, and that was an, a very an experience of a really truly democratic socialist um, way of organizing community. And it has just stayed with me all my life, really. That um, once you once you experience it, you don't really want to let go of it because when people cooperate democratically. Um, so much is possible. And, of course, it's not, you know, an easy road, but it seems to me like sharing the wealth and um, respecting the means of production and the human labor is just um, part of respecting the earth and getting along. You get so much bit more better results. But, yeah, the nonviolence training actually happened um, after uh, when I moved back up here in this, um, in 1981, actually, and um, bought property west of Willits. I actually looked towards Fort Bragg. Um, and we had been homesteading for a number of years when Judy Berry hit the scene. And I know most people do know, many people know, of course, who Judy Berry was, but I've encountered quite a number of people who are younger or have not lived here through the Timber Wars era, which was the 90s and into the 2000s, who don't know who Judy was. So I just want to mention her a little bit that um, she was a phenom. <laughs> she was really an amazing, amazing person who um, took this area just by storm, a nonviolent storm, that is. But um, 
She came from Sonoma County, actually, and actually from the East Coast. Before that, she had been a labor organizer, and she um, brought Earth First to this area and um, transformed it from a kind of male-dominated, old-fashioned, beer-drinking, white guy, kind of um, <laughs> sort of a redneck environmental organization um, that promoted um, um, monkey wrenching. Uh, the, the people probably know the book, uh, Monkey Wrench Gang. And Ed Abbey was the author of that, and, and um, um, I'll get the name of the other one in just a minute, um, uh, George Foreman, um, Dave Foreman. Um, anyways, their style of activism was very unlike what we know as Earth First here in this area. Um, and um, Judy really, um, she promoted ecofeminism, and she feminized Earth First. She just really took over and said, we're not, we're not them. <laughs> we're going to do this our way. And so we uh, had started doing nonviolent direct actions, but we didn't really call them that. And, um, you know, we, we just thought, of course we're not violent. Um, we're a bunch of soccer moms. Of course we can imagine <laughs> carrying a bunch of spikes and, you know, out into the forest and spiking trees. This is not really our style. But we hadn't made any declarations. And then in 1990, um, in May of 1990, a bomb went off in Judy's car as she and Daryl Turney were on their way to organize for a thing called Redwood Summer, which was to call many, many people, especially students, to this area to um, keep save the rest of the Redwoods because there was just a logging frenzy going on. Once Maxam Corporation took over Pacific Lumber in Humboldt County, it caused a cascading effect of just uh, what Judy called liquidation logging, where they're just taking everything they could turning it into whatever, board foot, whatever product, and then investing it back in the stock market where it will grow faster. And the whole thing was based on junk bonds, and um, it was just a horrible desecration of the forest. But anyway, Judy led the charge against that, and she also um, was a labor organizer, and she went into the GP mill. She organized with workers there as a wildcat organizer, and that really set the timber industry off, which is probably one of the big reasons why they... Uh, conspired with the FBI to put, put a bomb in her car and assassinate her. Well, it didn't actually kill her, but it did maim her very badly, and she was in the hospital under arrest for bombing herself. And Daryl was also um, arrested and charged with, with carrying a bomb. And they basically, Earth First was uh, portrayed as being terrorists and, um, you know, as uh, carrying a bomb ourselves. And we were smeared. We were the subject of an intense smear campaign that um, people who lived through that probably will not forget. They even tried to subpoena the librarians to tell them what books their suspects were reading. <laughs> but the librarians stood up to it. But anyways, um, when Judy and Daryl um, survived, Judy survived with grave injuries and was in a lot of pain, but she was just unstoppable. And after that, you know, we all said, we raised our hands and we said, oh, it's not us. Of course, we weren't carrying a bomb. And that's when um, people from the anti-nuclear movement, Bonnie Blackberry, and I'll think of the other name in just a minute, um, came to us and they said, well, we really like what you're doing, the nonviolence and the, that you're practicing, in fact, and we believe you and that you didn't bomb yourselves. And um, we would like to join you, but you don't have a nonviolence code. And we sort of were like a bit... Um, you know, uh, facetious. We said, "We don't. Why would we need that?" You know, and they said, "Well, you you do." And so, um, because we had declared that we were nonviolent, and we noticed that um, the press did not believe us, 
So we decided, well, we better actually learn this practice and, and start doing it. So they, we were trained, and I was trained as a trainer, um, and we began having um, nonviolence trainings. We have a format that we follow that is very simple and effective, and people usually enjoy it quite a bit. I think it um, makes us think about things differently, and um, the thing about this nonviolence training is that it's really geared for direct action, so it prepares you to do civil disobedience or to have a support role um, or just to understand what it's all about. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah, it's really more? an organizing tool in a lot of ways, and I just want to say that it has the, the uh, response to us offering nonviolence training as a kind of entry port for activism if you want to get involved with Jackson. Um, it's just this response has been amazing. I don't think I've ever seen such willingness and um, attentiveness. We can barely keep up with the demand. Well, that's fabulous. It's fabulous. I, I noticed that when I talked to people at the the rally in Fort Bragg. That, you know, everybody was really excited to take these trainings. Yeah, I think we've trained over well over 100 people now, and we'll have another one this Saturday. Um, and it's from 10 to 4.30, bring your own lunch and a folding chair. I'm not going to say the um, location on the radio, but um, people can call me at, um, I can give the number right now, is that okay? Sure, yeah. Um, that's 707-459-0548. Or they can call yeah. Margie at 937 0627. Fabulous. Better to call, call Margie. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, I just want to talk a little bit about um, how Earth First has evolved since the, the good old days or the bad mm -hmm. old days, however yeah. you want to see it. Please. Um, because um, in the old days, we were much more, I think, just much more helter-skelter, and we were still learning how to practice the nonviolence guidelines. Um, and we didn't have um, a very good handle on consensus process. Uh, so we had a lot more fights at meetings, a lot more discord, a lot of, um, and I'm not to say that we're completely smooth sailing now, but um, it just is so much easier to organize with people now uh, because... There seems to be less less rivalry, less, um, I don't want to say, I'd, I'd say people are really brave, but maybe less bravado. Mm -hmm. um, when I think back on some of the things that we did in um, Humboldt County in the fight to save headwaters, and also um, on Highway 20, we fought for redwood trees on Highway 20 against Caltrans, uh, where we did some pretty pretty crazy actions that I wouldn't recommend to people to do today. Um, we also have a lot more diversity now. We have people of color in our movement. And probably the biggest change um, that I can I could think of right now is um, when we were fighting Caltrans on the Willits Bypass, um, at the kind of towards the end of the campaign, which was waged on many levels, on the legislative level, on the, you know, um, lawsuit level and finally on the direct action level and um, 
we hooked up with Coyote Valley at that time because there were issues of the artifacts being disturbed and the ancestors being disturbed on the, and along with the wetlands. It was kind of really one, one and the same thing. Mm-hmm. And from working with uh, Priscilla Hunter and Polly Gervin and, and um, people in Coyote Valley, it just has made a world of difference. Um, for one thing, they kind of picked that campaign up out of the doldrums, which campaigns sometimes get into. Um, where we really didn't know what to do next. And when they arrived on the scene, they immediately educated themselves on the environmental side of things and um, just got themselves up to speed and started to exert their own influence um, and their own um, interests in protecting the um, artifacts uh, that were there. And so they just uh, really energized the campaign and um, educated the non-native people in it. Um, now I think that our, um, you know, everything we do now is with the tribes. We don't just have environmentalism over here and tribal cultural issues over there. So I kind of say it's culture, carbon, and um, I forget what the other one was. But, um, Consciousness. And carbon. We, we need to protect the culture of the Native people and their style of management, and we need to um, sequester carbon. So they really kind of go together, and um, Polly was reminding me recently that um, the genocide, attempted genocide of Native people happened right alongside the destruction of the old-growth redwood trees, Right in the early 1900s, when um, San Francisco burned, and there was a huge amount of, of extraction here, um, Native people were chased all over, killed, clubbed, kidnapped, enslaved, and um, just basically almost entirely wiped out. So the Native people that are here today are their survivors, and um, it's just pretty incredible source of wonder to me that they have survived and not only that but have overcome some of the trauma to the extent that they can reclaim their their heritage and their culture so i'm I'm very proud to be an ally and um i have um i share the vision for jackson state forest that could really be transformative i think in terms of restoring it to native american practices um, not just restoring, but restoring it to that kind of management where the um, plants and animals are not just resources. Uh, for example, the tan oak trees. There's a large section of tan oak in um, Jackson State Forest. And, um, you know, talk about cultural differences. I grew up thinking that tan oaks were, were weed trees, kind of trash trees. And I've so come around, you know, 180, 360 degrees on that because... They're wonderful acorn trees, and they give um, food to wildlife and food to humans, and they sustained the native people in this area, you know, completely. They were one of their main, main food sources. So those trees are not trash, and they're not um, just because they're not um, useful for timber doesn't mean that they they don't have value. Well, this is really interesting, Naomi. We would love to talk to you more. We're almost out of time. And uh, just would like to hear if there's any last-minute thing you'd like to say. Well, it's just way too short. <laughs> yes. 
But, yeah, I would say that the thing that sustains me and, and um, inspires me right now with Jackson is that it is public land. Unlike, you know, Earth First, we have always um, um, fought on private land. That's one of the things that we were innovative about, um, that we actually went over private corporate lands. But this is public land. It's a people's forest, and we can make a difference. And the other thing is, I mean, we could make this a model of something, you know, demonstrate something completely different yes, than what's yes. happening. Um, and the other thing is the amazing young people, the youth participation. It's really, I call it the Greta effect. Mm-hmm. Um, it is just so fantastic to have people to mentor and who want to learn and have so many skills and so much energy and, you know, and take this so seriously because it is their future. Yeah, this morning at the Gemini Action Camp, I was the only person over 18. Had a wow. 15-year-old, a 13-year-old, and a 12-year-old. and they're Yeah, and ho- they are so capable. It's holding down the so floor. inspiring. That yeah. If we can just transfer some of our experience, and they're very willing to to learn and then they have all of their own ideas so onward yes. onward well onward. thank you so much for joining us naomi thank you too and it's let's have a, a great benefit we'll yeah. have a great forest fest we'll see you in a week and a half all right earth first Ow. 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 <laughs> yeah so uh looks like we're getting right towards the end of the show here and um I want to thank you for tuning in. Uh, we'll be with you in one month. Third Tuesday of each month is the Trail Steward Radio Hour on Tuesday at 7. And next month we are going to have a full interview with Sarah Rose. Uh, we are also going to speak with Alder some more. We're going to have his little update, but I think he's going to add more to it. He has a lot to say and a very amazing person. And we are going to speak with Vince Taylor who a lot of you know as the person who stopped logging in Jackson State for eight years, from 2001 to 2008 or nine, depending on who you ask. Uh, we hope to see you at the Casper Forest Fest. That is going to be the Saturday, the last day of this month, July 31st. You want to say anything else about that, Paul? Yes. Oh, I. we might have failed to note that it, the Casper Forest Fest is taking place at the Casper Community Center. It <laughs> will... It will be an outdoor event for the most part, though the inside will be available as well. And uh, we're going to have a stage outside and um, booths and all kinds of things going on. And we are going to end with a song by Alice DiMaselli, who is going to be headlining the event. And she is going to play some great stuff like this, a Chinook Blues. Thank you very much for joining us. We'll see you next so month. So we can sing one more together, okay? Is that all right? This has been a production of KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening. And when you dam up my river